History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully. And this is episode 108, Dr. Alexander's Levant of Horrors. Last time, we left the Persian army reeling and fractured following the Battle of Issus. Darius III, King of Kings, was sent fleeing through northern Syria, abandoning his war chest and his own family in Sokoi as Alexander the Great and his Macedonian invaders prepared to continue the campaign of 333 south through Syria and the Levant, making their way toward Egypt. By now, every pillar of Persian dominance in western Anatolia has crumbled, and the Macedonians are on track to completely occupy the Western Empire. The first order of business for Alexander, after the Battle of Issus, was going to Sokoi, which had simply been relinquished along with the upper echelon of Persian royalty. Immediately following the battle, Parmenion and a detachment of Hittiroi cavalry raced to the Syrian city to secure their prize, wealth the likes of which they had scarcely seen before, and the nominal owners of that wealth, the entire family of Darius III. If it seems weird to take the royal family on campaign, you're right, but think about Darius's domestic position for a moment. Persian internal politics hadn't come to a halt just because there was a war. Darius was still semi-legitimate at best, holding the throne because it was a bad time for anybody to risk challenging him. He had no adult sons, no viable plans for succession and two young, unmarried daughters. If something happened to him on this campaign, there would have been a power struggle, and his family would have been caught in the middle. The girls would have been trophies to be won as a way to legitimize power for whoever came out on top, and the little prince Ocus, along with his mother and grandmother, were obstacles that would need to be cleared right away. They were significantly safer far from the palace capitals, or so Darius thought. But now they, along with several Persian noble ladies-in-waiting, were prisoners of the Macedonian general Parmenion. Along with the Persian war treasury, the Macedonians found Queen Mother Sisigambis, her daughter-in-law Statera the Elder, the maybe five-year-old Prince Ocus and Darius III's two daughters, Statera the Younger and Drupetis. Of the three royal children, Statera was the only one even close to adulthood. 
Though still unmarried, she was of marriageable age, at least to the Macedonians. Figure late teens or early twenties, roughly appear to Alexander. Drapetis, on the other hand, was maybe a preteen, possibly 13 or 14 at most. While Parmenion seized the Persian camp, Alexander and most of the Macedonian cavalry rode across the Syrian countryside hunting for Darius III and killing or capturing any Persian stragglers they came across. Eventually, though, even the intrepid king of Macedon was utterly exhausted and brought his forces to Sokoi as well. Alexander had suffered a minor wound in the recent fighting, a long, shallow cut on his thigh. It wasn't particularly concerning, but was enough to require some rest, which would be taken in spectacular fashion, as the Macedonian officers claimed the tents and belongings of their Persian counterparts, meaning that Alexander took all of Darius III's traveling finery for himself. That still left the question of what to do with the royal hostages, who had been kept almost entirely in the dark about what happened at Issus. Between Darius's tent and a few items that had fallen from the royal chariot as Darius fled through the chaos of the battlefield, Alexander had claimed, and taken to wearing, Darius's royal tiara, the purple felt cap that marked a Persian monarch as king of kings on the battlefield, as well as carrying the great king's own bow and shield around camp. While still occupying Sokoi, Alexander heard the haunting wails and sobs of the captive Dukshish keening in the tent where they had been imprisoned. The Macedonian king questioned his guards about this, and they explained that the women had heard nothing of the outcome of the battle, but they had seen Alexander prancing around in Darius's finery. They assumed that King Darius III, their son and husband and father, was dead, and his empire with him. Even just reading Arian's account of this exchange, you can almost feel Alexander's eyes go wide with shock. These were women, royal women at that, and for all the brutalities of ancient warfare, noble hostages were typically treated with respect. And for all the brutality that Alexander personally inflicted in battle, he was not a total psychopath. At the very least, he had some empathy for people he considered his peers. The Macedonian king quickly made arrangements for one of his bilingual officers to sit down with the Persian royal family and explain that Darius was not dead, or even captured. Alexander just had a few flashy trophies. Soon after this, Alexander held an audience with the Duke Shish in person to clarify his plans for them. These women had every reason to be afraid even after they had been reassured that Darius was still alive. All that meant was that the war would go on, and though their status as royalty had spared them from the worst possible treatment, the initial Macedonian sack of their camp when Parmenion first arrived did not leave them with high hopes. Curtius describes the incident in the histories of Alexander the Great. In all likelihood the passage in question was invented by the author. 
It is not reflected in any of our sources for Alexander's invasion, and Curtius is generally regarded as the most extravagant and likely to embellish. However, his description does appear to be an accurate portrayal of the general torment that women, especially noble women, underwent when their camp or city was captured by an invading army. And if the consequences of what might happen to women in war aren't something you want to hear about, skip 30 seconds or so, it's just this one paragraph. Stripped of their possessions, jewelry, and clothing, sexually assaulted, and taken into forced marriages or sexual slavery by their conquerors. Curtius paints a bleak picture. That said, by all accounts, Alexander actually handled this whole affair with the royal family extremely well. Rather than parading his hostages through the camp as disgraced prisoners, he went to their tent with a single companion, his best and most trusted friend, Hephaestion. And like, very best. When they entered... Queen Mother Sisagambis attempted to put her best foot forward and observe all the honors due to a conquering king, dropping to her knees and prostrating herself before the king's taller, better-looking best friend as her attendants looked on in horror, desperately gesturing and mouthing words to the Queen Mother that she had just bowed down to some random Macedonian officer. Some royals, Cyrus the Younger, for instance, would have taken immense and violent offense at this embarrassment. Alexander laughed it off, and when Sisagambis realized her mistake and profusely apologized, he called the elder woman mother, as both a sign of respect and an assertion that, regardless of anything else, he was taking her son's place as the greatest ruler in Asia. The king played off the etymology of his own name, Alexandros, a portmanteau of Alexo, meaning I defend, and Andros, the Greek word for man. Hephaestion, too, was an Alexander, or more accurately, an Alexandrone, a defender of men, as he was one of Alexander's personal guards. From there, Alexander himself sat down to explain that he regretted how in the dark and poorly treated the royal family had been, given their station. They were still hostages and thus could not be allowed to wander freely, even within the camp. Alexander knew that they would not be safe, either as enemies of the army or as beautiful noblewomen in a camp full of rough and aggressive soldiers. They would remain under guard, but with access to whatever finery, food, and drink they requested. Many ambitious conquerors would have seized on this opportunity to marry at least one of the women. Statera the Younger would have been the obvious candidate, but Drapetis could have been legally bound to Alexander despite her age, and he had every ability to nullify Statera the Elder's marriage to Darius by right of conquest. Instead, he reassured them that they would remain untouched and free of his household. 
Plutarch, in particular, extols Alexander's virtue in not having sex with Statera the Younger out of wedlock either, an extremely high bar, clearly. Claiming that Alexander had never been with a woman up to this point and was not about to sully his virtue without all the proper formalities. That probably makes it a good time to talk about Hephaestion and Alexander. First, just a brief note about their appearances. Hephaestion is almost universally treated as the better looking of the pair. Most artistic depictions of Alexander after his death depict him as an exceptionally handsome man, a platonic ideal of Greek kingship. However, written descriptions and one bust thought to be a copy of a contemporary statue present the Macedonian conqueror as a burly, stout warrior with a short, wide face and a square, bordering on blocky jawline. He was by no means ugly, but he's not the borderline angelic princeling seen in a lot of later artwork. More importantly, if Alexander wanted to avoid having sex with women before marriage, it was probably good for him that Hephaestion was a man. Interpretations range from homosexual lovers to mutually closeted lovers to just really good friends. But remember, this is ancient Greece. There was no taboo on homosexual relationships, especially for young men. The ancient authors only rarely describe such relationships in explicitly romantic terms, as they would for heterosexual unions, but the descriptions of Alexander and Hephaestion are very consistent with more explicitly homosexual relationships in Greek literature. Was Alexander gay? Maybe. Who the hell knows? It seems highly likely that he was attracted to men, and it took a long time before he did much to signal that he had interest in a woman outside of his royal responsibility to produce an heir. But making clear judgments on modern definitions of sexual orientation is impossible. The final stipulation, added by Alexander in his meeting with the royal women, must have been something about Prince Ochus. The little prince of Persia is only mentioned by Curtius, and does not appear after this meeting. Given everything else, it seems highly unlikely that anything negative was made explicit at the time. More plausibly, Alexander said that Ochus would be taken into his own care and sent to Macedon as a ward of the Argiad royal family. But this is the last time we hear about him in any of our sources. The only likely conclusion is that Alexander eventually had this kid killed. But if you prefer, you can imagine that Ochus was discreetly adopted, that he grew up to be a normal, happy, laughing child that grew further to become a normal, fairly contented adult, tending old horses, perhaps, or breeding tropical fish. By the time Alexander met with the royal women, winter was coming fast. But as the next campaign would take the army south through Syria and the Levantine coast, Alexander chose to move on despite harsher weather. 
it certainly wouldn't get as cold or snowy as it did in Macedon or the Anatolian highlands. That meant it was time to split the army again. Alexander would move through Syria, taking towns and small cities by force or accepting their surrender along the coast, while Parmenion and a picked detachment of Hittiroi would race to secure specific targets, starting with Damascus. The current satrap of Assyria was probably at Issus as well, along with many of his troops. We can easily make this assumption, because Darius's last major stop before encamping at Sokoi was the Syrian city and provincial capital, where he left his war chest and non-combatant, non-royal camp followers, including various noblewomen from his officers' families. Curtius also records that a satrap of Darius, described as Hyparch of Damascus, raced to the city ahead of Parmenion with a small contingent of soldiers. This was presumably the satrap of Assyria. Though not named in any of our sources, he may have been Colphin, son of satrap Artabazus II, the Pharnacid satrap who had once rebelled against Artaxerxes III, but had since returned to a position as an advisor in Darius's court. This coffin is at least described by Arian as the man charged with guarding the Persian treasury in Damascus. So if you combine the two sources, satrap coffin of Assyria. Several sources make a vague reference to Parmenion also being charged with capturing the remainder of the Persian navy first, but precise details of that mission are not explained. Arian at least provides some information about the final dissolution of the Achaemenids' Aegean fleet. After the Macedonian navy spent most of 333 hunting them down in small detachments, Pharnabazus III, theoretically satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, was holding out with his remaining ships on the island of Chios entertaining the Spartan king Agis III, who had come in secret to try and regain Pharnabazus' support for a Greek uprising against Macedon. With Alexander preoccupied in Cilicia, they had dispatched some of their forces under the Persian admiral Atophrodates to blockade Halicarnassus and disrupt Alexander's supply lines, but they could not realistically hope to retake the city. When news of the Persian defeat at Issus spread, the navy began to disintegrate. The petty kings of Cyprus and the northern Phoenician cities were preparing to surrender, as were many of the Greek islands still under Persian control, and the ships they sent to support Pharnabazus began peeling away. Pharnabazus himself attempted to flee Chios and join Atophrodates at sea outside of Halicarnassus but he was intercepted by the Macedonian fleet, defeated, and captured along with his household. The Persian navy was effectively dissolved. But Pharnabazus himself did manage to escape from the Macedonians once they reached the mainland, and smuggled himself to the island of Kos, where he spent most of the next decade in hiding. The rest of his family, however, 
were taken to join the other hostages in the Macedonian baggage train. So Parmenion went to Damascus. While en route, he captured a messenger sent out by Coffin to call for reinforcements. Parmenion wanted to use this messenger as a guide as they passed through unfamiliar territory, but he slipped away from his guards and fled back to Damascus to warn the governor of the impending Macedonian attack. Without a guide, and with the knowledge that the Persians would be prepared for his arrival, Parmenion had to proceed cautiously. When he came near Damascus, the Macedonian scouts must have been utterly baffled by the scene outside the city. In a half-baked plan to lure the Macedonians into a false sense of confidence, Coffin had attempted a feigned retreat for the entire city. The royal treasury was emptied, and its contents laid out in front of the open gates of Damascus, while the satrap and his soldiers fled, intending to turn around and charge the Macedonians as they approached, distracted by the mounds of treasure. But the Persian governor had miscalculated. His apparent abandonment sparked chaos in and around Damascus. The people of the city, seeing small mountains of money, jewels, and finery piled up outside the gates and a foreign invader bearing down on them, with their supposed protectors fleeing away, did a combination of two things. Thousands of nobles and their children fled after Coffin, thinking they had to escape before the city was captured. Tens of thousands of ordinary people ran out of the gates and into the palace to loot the abandoned treasure. Now, with a mounting tale of non-combatants behind them and even more people flooding into the plain that was supposed to be his battlefield, Coffin's forces were functionally immobilized and their feigned retreat became an actual retreat. Some of Parmenion's hetairoi were sent out to capture as many of the fleeing Persian nobles as they could, while the rest rode in to try and seize as much of the remaining treasury as possible and restore some semblance of organization. They probably had to argue with a lot of people who claimed finders keepers on big bags of gold, but there was no fighting. The captured notables who never made it to Coffin reads like a who's who of almost random nobility from recent Persian history. They found Atossa, the sister wife of Artaxerxes III, who had been somewhere between honorary royal wife and political hostage since her husband's assassination, alongside three of her unmarried daughters. They found the wives and sons of Darius III's brother, Axothres. They also found the wives of Artabazus the Pharnacid and his son, Pharnabazus, who was still at large with the navy. They found three daughters of the recently deceased mentor of Rhodes, as well as his brother's widow and her youngest son. Most importantly, they found mentor's widow, also his niece, Barsine and a whole host of Greek ambassadors sent to try and secure Persian funds for revolt against Macedon. They were all taken as hostages, and the Greek ambassadors as traitors. 
But Barsine, in particular, was sent to Alexander. Once upon a time, when she had been living in exile at the Macedonian court, and before she married her uncle Mentor, Philip II had attempted to arrange a marriage between Alexander and Barsine. But the Perso-Rhodian family was allowed to return to Persian territory before anything came of it. According to Curtius, Alexander ordered Barsine's guards away one night after she was captured and had sex with her. Whether this was supposed to be an assault or rekindling an old flame is not made clear by the author, but historians are skeptical of it either way. It just doesn't make sense with Alexander's treatment of other noble hostages or general disposition towards sex and marriage on every other occasion. The only evidence in support of this, once again known only from Curtius, is that Barsine later claimed that her son, Heracles, named for the Greek hero god, was Alexander's bastard son. Some historians even doubt that Heracles existed in the first place, but if he did, the whole sordid tale seems more like Barsine made a bid for power through a son conveniently born out of wedlock around the right time. With Damascus and a whole host of noble hostages now secured, Parmenion received new orders from Alexander's to secure the rest of what the Romans later called Coel Syria, basically the southern half of the modern country. Meanwhile, Alexander was sweeping along the coast of modern Syria and northern Lebanon, accepting surrender after surrender. And every few cities, he would find not just local princes and nobles offering obeisance, but also envoys from island territories like Cyprus. One by one, they pledged their new allegiances to King Alexander. Eventually, the conqueror reached the Phoenician city of Merat, modern Amrit in Syria. Like their northern neighbors, the Marathians surrendered without a fight. But while he was in the city, Alexander received a letter from Darius III. Arian and Curtius disagree on the exact content of the letter. Curtius claims that Darius referred to himself as king, but not Alexander, while Arian supposedly transcribed the letter with the phrase, Darius the king asks of Alexander the king. It is possible that both are correct, but the exact detail of the original letter was lost in translation over time. It would be standard procedure for Darius to describe himself with one of the traditional Persian titles, like Great King or King of Kings, but call Alexander just King. More importantly, though, the rest of the letter made Alexander chafe. Quote from Arian. Philip and Artaxerxes III were on terms of friendship and alliance, but upon the accession of Artaxerxes' son Arces, that's Artaxerxes IV, Philip was guilty of unprovoked aggression against him, which is objectively true. Now, since Darius's reign began, Alexander has sent no representative to his court to confirm the former friendship and alliance between the two kingdoms. On the contrary, 
He has crossed into Asia with his armed forces and done much damage to the Persians. For this reason, Darius took the field in defense of his country and of his ancestral throne. The issue of the battle was as some god willed, and now Darius the king asks of Alexander the king to restore from captivity his wife, his mother, and his children, and he is willing to make friends with him and be his ally. For this reason, he urges Alexander to send to him in company with Meniscus and Arsimas, who have brought this request, representatives of his own, in order that proper guarantees may be exchanged. Alexander wrote a long, ranty reply, but he made his intentions quite clear. Most of the letter is levying either blatantly false or laughably exaggerated accusations about the Persians interfering in Greek affairs, like describing the city of Perinthus daring to be independent as an act of rebellion against Macedon, or claiming that Darius had provoked the massive invasion of his own territory. However, it's really the last couple of paragraphs that drive the message home. Quote, By the gods' help I am master of your country, and I have made myself responsible for the survivors of your army who fled to me for refuge. Far from being detained by force, they are serving of their own free will under my command. Come to me, therefore, as you would come to the lord of the continent of Asia. Should you fear to suffer any indignity at my hands, then send some of your friends, and I will give them proper guarantees. Come then, and ask me for your mother, your wife, and your children, and anything else you please, for you shall have them, and whatever besides you can persuade me to give you. And in the future, let any communication you wish to make with me be addressed to the king of all Asia. Do not write to me as an equal. Everything you possess is now mine. So if you should want anything, let me know in the proper terms, or I shall take steps to deal with you as a criminal. If, on the other hand, you wish to dispute your throne, stand and fight for it, and do not run away. Wherever you may hide yourself, be sure I shall seek you out. Alexander was making it very clear that he no longer saw the Persian Empire as an indefatigable titan in the east, but as a lesser power that had already been beaten and hadn't realized it yet. Understandably, Darius did not immediately issue a counter-response. Instead, settled in at Babylon for the foreseeable future, he sent out the call once again to raise a royal army, this time summoning all available forces and prominent generals, even if it meant weakening their other frontiers. Nothing could possibly be as much of an emergency as not only a wildly successful invasion, but the leader of that invasion claiming dominion over the whole empire. 
This letter also yields the most grandiose title claimed by Alexander III. King of all Asia. And I sort of wonder if Darius even understood what his rival was saying when the letter was first read to him. It is an exceptionally Greek view of Alexander's claim. Asia was Greek terminology. In fact, the whole idea of continents was mostly a Greek innovation. To the Persians and most other inhabitants of so-called Asia, there was just the known world and its various subdivisions. The Greeks were the ones who divided that up into Europe, aka everything north and west of Greece, Libya, aka Africa, and Asia. The word Asia probably derives from a Bronze Age city-state or tribal confederation in northwestern Anatolia, and was gradually more and more broadened by the Greeks as the Asua people themselves faded into history. By the flourishing of Greek literature in the 5th century BCE, Asia meant everything east of the Mediterranean Sea. Ancient and mythical kings are often described in that literature as the rulers of all Asia, up to some specific western boundary. They occasionally described the Achaemenids as rulers of all Asia, but it was never a Persian title. Alexander was describing himself the way a Greek would describe an Achaemenid, and in doing so accentuated his own foreignness. From Marat, Alexander continued further south, entering the Phoenician core of power, the Tripolis of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyr. Byblos surrendered without incident, as did Sidon, and the Triple Alliance's neutral headquarters known as Tripoli. From there, Alexander continued onward towards Tyr. But before we get to that particularly famous confrontation, I'm going to take a break and then talk about the rest of the Persian Empire, and the former Persian Empire, as it were. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, altogether, too many histories of this period just follow the Macedonian king around as he marched from place to place and expanded his territory. It gives the impression 
that the conquered regions just rolled over and gave up. Not so. Admittedly, many of the details for resistance to the Macedonian conquest in this period come from Curtius, who automatically gets additional scrutiny, but his is also the least biographical of the major narratives. He is often our major source for what was happening with Alexander's generals in other theaters, while Arian, Diodorus, Plutarch, and the rest focus specifically on Alexander himself. Particularly, Curtius describes the resistance to Macedonian rule in Anatolia while Alexander was busy in the Levant. A collection of Persian nobles and generals, formerly based in the Anatolian satrapies, that had survived the defeat of Issus, had rallied together, possibly still in unconquered Bithynia, to try and retake their lost territory. Alexander had left Antigonus Monophthalmos in command of the occupation forces, and although he had already sent most of the troops initially left behind to reinforce Alexander after the Battle of Issus, Antigonus still had sufficient garrisons in Anatolia to repel the would-be conquerors. Curtius says that Antigonus fought and won three battles, but he does not provide any additional description. Meanwhile, the Spartan king Agis III finally put his plans into motion. He had secured as much money as he could, along with ten triremes to transport mercenaries from Crete to the Greek mainland before the Persian navy was destroyed. In early 332, he returned to the Peloponnese with his newly hired forces in tow and launched an attack against Macedon. This was, in a sense, a preemptive assault. Technically, Sparta had been badly beaten by Philip II before his death, and had been left alone by Alexander this whole time, despite being one of the leading voices in the anti-Macedonian movement. At best, it was an act of desperation, and at worst, a misguided venture by someone hyped up on his own national mythology. Sparta was a fractured shell of what it once was, and even then, it had never truly been the military titan that the Spartans tried to present themselves as to the rest of the world. This Macedonian-Spartan war would actually run for several years as Agis III tried to oust the Macedonian regent Antipater. The cities of Crete, initially willing to back whichever side could offer them more money, found themselves occupied, first by Macedonian garrisons, then by Sparta, then Macedon again, then Sparta, each trying to keep Cretan mercenary forces on their side. But ultimately, Agis simply ran out of manpower and money, and he too would be defeated in a devastating battle of Megalopolis, forcing Sparta to formally bow to Macedon at last. While all of this was happening, Alexander himself was quite busy. He arrived outside the city of Tyre during a festival to a local Phoenician god called Melkart, a warrior fertility god, patron deity of Tyre itself, and commonly associated with Greek Heracles, 
aka Hercules, supposedly an ancient ancestor of the Macedonian kings. So Alexander naturally saw this as an opportunity. He requested permission to enter the city and make sacrifices to Phoenician Heracles. If they let him in, then Tyr was signaling its surrender. If they refused, Alexander got to add religion to raw might in his justification for attacking. They refused, Alexander attacked. There was just one problem, though. Tyr was an infamously impregnable island fortress, 800 or so meters off the coast, about half a mile. It had once held out against the Neo-Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar for 13 years. They only seemed to have come over to Persia under Cyrus or Cambyses in exchange for favorable terms. They would not succumb to Macedonian aggression easily. The Macedonian navy was, for the most part, still stationed in the northern Aegean to defend the homeland. A small contingent of ships had accompanied the army along the coast to maintain supply lines, but if they sailed too close to the island, they would be destroyed. Realistically, Tyr could only be taken with a combination of massive naval superiority and agents on the inside. It's a shame it was an island. If it wasn't, then you could hypothetically roll all the normal siege engines right up to the walls and besiege as you would any other city. Now, Tyre is still an important city in Lebanon today, and if you look up the modern city, you might notice that there is no island. But it does sit on a strangely smooth-sided sandy peninsula. That would be Alexander's fault the Macedonian army began work on a narrow causeway to bridge the distance between the mainland and the island citadel. The initial stages were still working in the shallows that were barely deep enough for the Macedonian ships, and those were easy enough for laying stone on either side to fill in with dirt and miscellaneous debris. But as they got further out to sea the water deepened precipitously. An almost unfathomable amount of material would be needed to fill the space between the mainland and the island. And with just the Macedonian army to work on it, the project could plausibly have taken years. But much earlier in history than Alexander, when Tyr was first founded around 2750 BCE, it had only been a city on the mainland. The occupation and construction of a defensive city on the nearby island came later, and Old Tyr, the site of the original mainland settlement, was still there as an extension of the Tyrian economic, cultural, and political center now on the island. The Tyrian soldiers had abandoned the old city immediately when Alexander arrived, meaning the Macedonians just sort of walked in and claimed it. As the causeway deepened, Alexander ordered his men to ravage the old city. The populace was enslaved and forced to demolish their old homes, all but completely destroying the mainland city 
to use the wreckage as filler for Alexander's causeway. The inhabitants of Old Tyr were put to work hauling stones and timber out to sea or else hiking up into the mountains of Lebanon under Macedonian guard to fell cypress trees and bring them back to use as support beams and siege engines. As the Macedonians crept closer to the island of Tyr, they came within range of the Tyrian defenses. Arrows, catapult stones, ballistae bolts, and all manner of missile fire from strange and improvised defensive weapons came crashing down, desperately trying to dissuade the Macedonian advance, but no doubt killing many of the defenders' enslaved countrymen in the process. Alexander ordered much of the local livestock slaughtered and had their skins stretched out in massive screens to cover his slaves and soldiers alike from incoming arrows. And the causeway extended ever further out to sea. Still, the siege stretched on. Under normal circumstances, a project like this would have been impossible. The defender's navy would have just swept in, and destroyed any construction projects, slaughtering anybody working out on the finished causeway. But Tyr, along with the rest of Phoenicia, had long been the primary suppliers of ships to the Persian navy. Now Macedon's relentless hunting of the Persians in the Aegean paid off in full. There simply were not enough ships left to attack the causeway, and when they tried using grappling arms and hooks normally meant for boarding enemy ships to pull apart the Macedonian constructions, they were chased off by siege engines that Alexander had stationed along the already completed bridge. As they came closer, towers and parapets were constructed on the causeway as well, allowing Macedonian archers with oxybeles, crossbows, and ballistae to fire back at the Tyrian defenders or any ships that came within range. In a futile effort to stop the oncoming storm, the Tyrians sent some of their fighting men down the coast with the remaining ships to put in and come up behind the Macedonian line. They were nominally successful, raiding the Macedonian work teams and attacking the soldiers moving debris from Old Tyr, but this raid in force was hardly an army on par with the tens of thousands of invaders. They were easily routed and forced back to their island, having only briefly delayed construction. A more significant distraction came in the form of an Arab raid, with Nabataean Arabs in Persian service coming from the south to attack the Macedonian lumber teams in the Lebanon mountains. However, Rather than disrupting the Siege of Tyr, they seem to have provided Alexander with a welcome distraction. The Macedonian king personally led a detachment of his army away from the city to hunt down these raiders, initially pursuing on horseback before tracking them through the mountains on foot. The counter-raid was a success that supposedly involved Alexander personally sneaking up and killing two Arab scouts to steal their firewood, according to one of his own courtiers, called Kares. The siege of Tyre continued, and fighting on the causeway intensified as it approached the shores of the island. 
By then, as many of the city's inhabitants as possible had fled. They were already running low on ships, but many women and children were loaded onto the boats of some Carthaginian dignitaries that had come to celebrate the festival of Melkart before Alexander arrived. The northwest African city had begun as a Tyrian colony, and many of the newfound refugees fled there as the Macedonians approached. Initially, the defenders were able to halt the advance not far from their shores by throwing burning timbers and pitch down onto the Macedonian siege towers and the causeway, sending it up in flames. They simply couldn't bridge that final gap between the causeway and the island, and every time they tried, the Tyrians would light it on fire. So Alexander recalled all but the soldiers stationed on the causeway defenses and had the enslaved citizens of the old city start expanding the causeway from the mainland all the way back out to the island, making the entire thing wider and capable of supporting more defensive towers. When the expansion project reached as far as the original, there were now enough Macedonian defenses to effectively suppress any Tyrian attempts to throw flaming debris over the walls. So finally, in July of 332, a full seven months after the siege began, the causeway was complete, and Alexander made preparations to assault Tyr in earnest. Siege engines were readied to roll down the causeway and crack through the walls. The Macedonian soldiers behind them, with Alexander himself leading the way, prepared to charge through the first available breach. And, just to spit in the Tyrian face, the former shipyards of the Persian Empire were turned against the last Phoenician holdouts. Ships from Cyprus and other northern Phoenician cities like Sidon arrived not to assist their former allies, but to join Macedon. They had to wait three days for favorable conditions at sea for the newly arrived ships to be effective, but when fair weather came, Tyr fell. The once invincible walls were cracked open, and the invaders charged in. The city was pillaged and razed to the ground. When the king of Tyr came out to formally surrender, he asked only that those who had found shelter in the temple of Melkart be spared. Which they were, even as the city walls were torn down around them and the rest of the populace were bound and sold into slavery. Tyr, of course, would be rebuilt, but Alexander's causeway would forever link it to the mainland and generations would pass before they were allowed any sort of defensive fortifications again. One of the most well-defended cities of antiquity had fallen forever. Today, Alexander's Causeway still stands as a lasting monument, or scar, to his victory, depending on which view you want to take. Stretching all the way to the seafloor, the last 1,300 years of blocking the Mediterranean's natural current have caused sand and sediment to build up around the original construction, making the connection between the old island and the mainland much wider. 
you can see a map depicting this on historyofpersiapodcast.com. Alexander literally dammed up the Mediterranean itself and unmade an island to conquer Tyr. And he still wasn't done. Next time, the Macedonian army continues marching south toward Egypt, and we might even catch up with Darius III. King of somewhat fewer kings than he used to be. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.